Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Monday, June 22nd, 2020. On today's episode, we're going to discuss the latest film and TV news. Okay, a bit of sad news today. Uh, earlier today, it was revealed that Joel Schumacher, the director, has died. Ben, tell us about it. Yeah, Joel Schumacher, who was 80 years old, died of cancer this morning in New York City. I think a lot of people... Uh, probably know him best for his mid 90s Batman movies. He directed Batman Forever and Batman and Robin. You know, he added a lot of the the campiness of the Adam West days back into the Batman franchise after Tim Burton was done with it and before Christopher Nolan sort of relaunched the whole thing. I think a lot of people look at Batman and Robin as one of the worst uh, Batman movies and <laughs> and sort of um I guess blame Schumacher for that. I kind of have always been a little bit of a defender of his, not necessarily for Batman and Robin, but for Batman Forever movie that I think is actually really pretty good and very stylish and just a different type of Batman movie than a lot of people want, but one that I think is just as valid as any other version. So uh, I think for a lot of people, you know, Joel Schumacher uh, probably for the worst is associated with those movies, but I, I think his career was so much more interesting than just directing a couple of Batman movies in the mid nineties. He started out as a costume designer and then he wrote the whiz, which I didn't even know until I was researching his, his IMDb and, and stuff uh, for writing up this obituary. But the whiz was an all black retelling of the wizard of Oz that came out in, I think the late seventies. And I had no idea that he wrote the screenplay for that. Uh, he directed St. Elmo's fire, which was a big brat pack drama back in 1985. He directed the lost boys, the vampire thriller, um, flatliners. He was really, really great at finding young up and coming actors who would go on to be some of the biggest you know the biggest stars in Hollywood so we had a real eye for casting he uh, directed some John Grisham adaptations and movies like Phone Booth and Phantom of the Opera I mean he was he was one of those directors that you can never really pin down what exactly he was going to do because he was <laughs> constantly pushing himself in different directions and sort of expanding his palette as a storyteller so uh, it's a sad day to see him go 
Um, I would also, I, I linked to in this, uh, in this obituary, I, li- I linked to this vulture profile of him from last year, which is an incredible read. He talks about having somewhere in the range of 10,000 to 20,000 sexual partners over his life. Uh, it is an <laughs> amazing read. I would definitely, if you're interested in Joel Schumacher at all, you have to read that piece. So yeah. uh, check that out. I wouldn't say I'm a huge Joel Schumacher fan. I, I really liked, um, Falling Down was yep. a, a film of his that I, I, I really enjoyed. I, I think I'm a bigger fan of Batman and Batman Forever than I think a lot of people are. Uh, he's one of those directors, I feel like kind of like Tony Scott, in that he always kind of went big and bold in contemporary and didn't really care to m- try to make things feel timeless. Yeah. <laughs> you, you know, they, they kind of, you know, he, like he swings for it. Uh, Chris, what do you think of Joel Schumacher? I, I like a lot of his movies, and I even kind of like both his Batman movies. Even Batman and Robin, I think, has a place in this world. Uh, you know, he he started out as a production designer, so he was very much a stylist. He's very much sometimes a style over substance guy, but I appreciate that. I like his little weird touches. Like, he, he loved neon, and, and it's all over his movies. Like, one of my favorite things about uh, Flatliners, the original one, which he directed, is is Kiefer Sutherland has this like art deco apartment he lives in and all the lighting is fluorescent lighting tubes and they're all uh, attached to the floor instead of the ceiling. And it's like, no, <laughs> no one lives like that. Like no one has an apartment like that, but it's in that movie. Cause you can just tell Drew Schumacher was like, this looks cool. Let's do this. And you know, I appreciate a filmmaker who's like, he doesn't give a shit about about like being realistic. He just wants it to look good, and you know, I I, I appreciate stuff like that. And I like a lot of his movies. I liked um, Eight Millimeter. I was a big fan of that, which is like a really scuzzy studio pick. Like it, when you watched it, it just like feels like a really filthy film, and it's amazing that that was like yeah. an actual like studio movie. You almost feel gross watching that movie. Yeah, exactly. And it's kind of a big deal that like he had enough clout to direct a movie that was that nasty and was still like, you know, a, a mainstream film. So yeah, I like a lot of his movies. Brad, what is your feeling on the filmography of Joel Schumacher? Uh, roughly the same. And I, the, the Batman movies he did still do hold a special place in my heart. You know, I, um, I love Batman forever growing up simply because I was a huge Jim Carrey fan as a kid and seeing him just cut loose and go crazy as the Riddler, uh, was so much fun. Not to mention the fact that Tommy Lee Jones is just having a blast in that movie as as Two Face, um, and just the way they work together is great. Even though Tommy Lee Jones famously did not uh, quote unquote sanction Jim Carrey's buffoonery, um, as a, a famous story uh, was told about the, the the tension between them. But yeah, I mean it's uh, it's one of those movies too where I had it on VHS and I would watch it so many times. And that there's a couple friends and I who will just randomly throw out lines. But that the Riddler and Two Face said during that. Movie. What is your favorite line? Um, just because. Oh my! You're gonna put me on the spot, man. I don't need. Um, <laughs> the thing is, is like it, it's not even like it's not even famous lines. It'll just be like random small lines that even that like you know Edward Nigma says before he even becomes the Riddler, just because we're weird like that. He, he also reteamed with Jim Carrey for the number twenty three, which is a weird bad movie. I remember seeing that. Yeah, that was uh, not, okay. Not a high we, point. we were talking a lot about the Batman movies uh, that he directed, and there's some big Batman news that came out today, and that is that Michael Keaton is going to reprise his role as Batman 
in multiple DC movies. Chris, tell us about it. Yeah, this is wild. I don't think anyone could have predicted this. Like, I, I know over the years people have fan casted this idea, but I never thought it would actually happen. But apparently it's happening. So Michael Keaton, who, of course, played uh, Batman in the two Tim Burton Batman movies, Batman and Batman Returns, is set to reprise the character again in uh, the the Flash movie, which is drawing a little bit. Uh, I mean, at least it was last time we heard it was drawing on the Flashpoint storyline where the Flash ends up in another uh, alternate universe, which uh, as a result opens the way to all sorts of multiverses within the, the DCEU or whatever the hell we're calling it now. Um, and there's also, you know, this this news comes with the rumor that not only will the Keaton Batman appear in this, but he's also might appear in another film like Batgirl, where he serves as a, a mentor. Um, the reports are comparing him to sort of like uh, Nick Fury in the MCU. So it's not really clear how much Michael Keaton we're going to get. It's not even clear if he's going to really be Batman again, or if he's just going to be, you know, Bruce Wayne, like, is he going to put on the bat suit again? I don't know. But in all we know at this point is Michael Keaton is, is likely coming back to the Batman universe. Yeah. I think one of the exciting things about this to me is it's not just Michael Keaton as Batman again, it's him as the Batman from the Tim Burton movies. So this, this new multiverse or this new universe that, uh, the flash finds himself in is going to be the universe that, that uh, Tim Burton had, uh, you, you know, ba- Batman was in that universe. And what, what has he been up to for the last 30 years? And uh, you know, there's all obviously also the possibility that uh, you mentioned him mentoring. So maybe there's a little bit of Batman beyond in there too. Right. Which could, were you a fan of Batman beyond? Uh, yeah. I, I liked most of it. I didn't like it as much as the, you know, the Batman animated series, but I liked the idea. So, yeah. Yeah, and I also think that this is a cool way of, you know, the DCEU has become very messy. (laughs) They introduced that Joker movie that isn't in the continuity. They are, you know, Matt Reeves is doing his own Batman thing that is not going to involve Michael Keaton or or Joaquin Phoenix or any of the pre-established DC stuff. So it can all be written off as those are different multiverses. And, uh, you know, with Ben Affleck probably not wanting to reprise the role of Batman. This is a way for them to, uh, I guess, have their cake and eat it too. With uh, th- they're able to keep the things that they liked, Wonder Woman and Aquaman, and change whatever the f they didn't like, right? <laughs> so it's yeah. like, yeah. Uh, uh, Brad, do you have any thoughts on Michael Keaton returning as Batman? Uh, Michael Keaton is my Batman, uh, so I am extremely excited about this. Yeah, I, I love the Dark Knight trilogy that Christopher Nolan did, obviously, and Christopher ba- Christian Bale made a great Batman. Uh, but this is awesome. Um, I, I hope that this is something that becomes like you know uh, a continuing thing that you know this this whole idea of him being a mentor means that he's there and along for the ride and does suit up again uh, as Batman, just because it would be. It'd be very cool to have that happen again. Michael Keaton is such a good actor. And uh, just thinking about how good he was as uh, Vulture in Spider-Man Homecoming, I I just can't wait to see him get back in this role. I wonder if they're going to like recreate like the Batcave set from Tim Burton's films and stuff like that. That could be like, is he going to be driving like an upgraded version of that, that Batmobile? That would be so weird and awesome. 
Ben, what do you think of Michael Keaton as Batman? I love this. I love all of this. Uh, I, I just, I, I love that Michael Keaton, who seems to be having so much fun as an actor these days, is going to be coming back to this because over the past few years, I don't know if you guys have noticed, but like during his talk show appearances and stuff like that, it seems like he would trot out Batman stories. And like, I, there, there's a video on YouTube of him on the Tonight Show talking about how his Batman would never cry like Spider Man. And uh, I remember <laughs> in in 2018, he gave a um, a commencement speech at Kent State University and he set up this whole thing where you know he gave this big speech and at the end he was like all right I'm going to leave you with really you know two very very important words and I want you to remember these words and the two words were I'm Batman and then he just walked <laughs> off the stage so like he clearly has an affinity for this character and and loves uh, you know, playing it and and being associated with it. So I'm glad that they found a way, I guess an in-story way for that to make sense to be able to bring him back. Yeah, it's going to be cool. I'm actually very excited for this. So uh, this is the musical I think that we are all excited about. This is Hamilton, which is coming to Disney+. Plus. Ben, tell us about the, the MPAA rating for this. Yeah, so uh, the movie is actually rated PG-13, which is interesting because there are multiple uses of the word fuck in the show. But as you probably know, uh, in PG-13 ratings, uh, there can only be one use of fuck. So Lin-Manuel Miranda, the creator and, and star of Hamilton, said on Twitter today, on July 3rd, you're getting the whole show, every note and scene, and a one-minute countdown clock during intermission, but the MPAA has a hard rule about language. More than one utterance of fuck is an automatic R rating. We have three fucks in our show. So I literally gave two fucks so the kids could see it. In Yorktown, there's a mute over, I get the fuck back up again. And then there's a part in uh, the song called, uh, I think it's called Washington's on Your Side, where uh, Southern motherfucking Democratic Republicans is going to replaced with a, a record <laughs> scratch. He says, you could sing whatever you like at home, even sync up the album. Enjoy. So um, this is kind of interesting because we were in our Slack channel looking for all of the uses of the word fuck in Hamilton. And I think I could only find two official f- uses of the full word. And he says that there are three in this show. So I theorize in this piece, uh, in this article at slashfilm.com, which I encourage everybody to read about where the third F-bomb could come. It's a little bit of a spoiler, even for people who have listened to the uh, broadcast recording album over and over and over again. So I, I don't necessarily want to talk too much about that now, just in case uh, people are, you know, don't know much about Hamilton, haven't actually seen it live or anything. Um, but you can read the piece and, and I get into it there. But um, basically this sort of confirms what we thought from the start, that there was no way that, you know, a, a show or a, a movie like this would actually have more than one use of the word fuck on Disney Plus, which is obviously like a family friendly streaming service. So uh, it's just confirming what we already knew, but um, it's a little bit more specifics about what exactly is going to be taken out. And there's also this idea of this mysterious third fuck that could be floating around somewhere in the musical. (laughs) So this podcast alone has had nine versions of the word fuck, I guess 10 now. So we we definitely could not get a PG-13 rating. Uh, but Ben, I'm wondering, you're a fan of this musical, like, yeah. are, like, it, does it worry you that they're kind of neutering it in a way? I mean, I would prefer it to be, uh, you know, as recorded as, as it was, but, um, you know, basically like Lin-Manuel Miranda has, has addressed this in the past saying, 
you know, if I have to word, uh, mute a word here or there to reach the largest audience possible, I'm okay with that. And I, I ultimately sort of fall on that side of things too. Like, you know, my principles and all of that, I, I would love to live in a world where, where we get to see it sort of as it was. But I think, you know, understanding the, the realities of the business and all of that kind of stuff, I, I just, uh, this is what we have and I'm, I'm just going to be grateful for it and try not to be too disappointed. So um, I guess you could always go back to the recording, the album and listen to it if you want to uh, get the full experience. Yeah. And this isn't the first time this has happened. Like, you know, there have been movies like I think Wave Rider was recut for PG-13, Deadpool 2. Um, oh, Passion of the Christ, I think. Had a, I guess they, they didn't remove the F word there. They were just <laughs> removed a lot of violence, right? <laughs> a lot of blood. But um, yeah, so uh, that will be available on Disney Plus. Uh, what's the date that it comes out? July 3rd. So I think next Friday. Next Friday. Looking forward to that. Because I have actually, I'm one of the few people in the world that I think has not heard any of the songs from Hamilton. Like, I, I did know the what same Hamilton... thing before I went to see it. I, I purposefully tried to shut out as much as I could so I could like experience it, you know, in like on stage for the first time. And I'm guessing a lot of people now that they know that this is coming to Disney Plus are doing the same thing. So that's why I didn't want to get you know too into the weeds on the uh, the actual yeah. specifics there. But um, I, man, it's such a great show. So I'm really excited to be able to watch it. And I'm excited that people like you and and other people who have stayed away from it will actually have uh, you know unrestricted access to it now. Yeah, I'm I'm happy that I'm going to be able to see it with the original cast because th- th- that was like one of the like when it was coming around and I, I know you tried to get tickets to a, a screen a a, a a performance of it right before I, I guess right after yeah. COVID like kind of knocked the world <laughs> on its ass. Um, but I was kind of like, oh, that kind of sucks that I don't get to see it with all the original players. But I guess now I will. We all will. So that's mm-hmm. kind of cool. Um, okay, let's let's move on to this horror anthology series VHS, or do you pronounce it V slash H slash S? I don't know. Uh, well, the, the, they're rebooting it, reviving it. Chris, tell uh, yeah. Us about so it. The, the 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 source calls this a reboot, but it's it really sounds more like a, a sequel. Um, but you know, the VHS franchise. Uh, there are three movies already. They're they're horror anthology films. Um, but what's going to set this apart from the other films is whereas the other films, each individual segment stands on its own, which is usually the case for most horror anthology films in this one, all the stories are actually going to be connected and add up to one uh, full narrative. So that's what sets this apart from the other three films, which is kind of interesting because there really aren't a lot of horror anthology films that take that approach. Usually you have, you know, a wraparound story where it's usually like someone shows up somewhere like in a tomb or somewhere creepy. And then some creepy person comes out and says, ah, let me tell you several different stories. And everyone sits <laughs> around listening to them. But this is going to take a, a different approach. Interesting. Are, are you excited for this? And wh- why is it called VHS? Uh, there's no word on that yet. Um, I know the original film had its, its wraparound story was, a bunch of burglars break into a house and they find a bunch of VHS tapes and they, instead of, you know, leaving or robbing the place, they, they <laughs> watch the movies. So I'm guessing that's going to have some sort of similar format to this. And I guess it's going to be set in 1994, maybe since, you know, that's when VHS was more prominent. Unlike now, by the way, do we know why the VHS series like is spelt the way it is with, 
the capital V slash H slash S and not just VHS. Uh, I don't know off the top of my head, but Spell that. I'm sure there's a there's a really <laughs> dumb reason. <laughs> it annoys me every time I say it. Uh, okay, we have one last final story here, and this is involving Star Wars, the High Republic. And uh, there's an expert uh, excerpt that was posted online of the first chapter of the first book. And I'm saying that right now because if you don't want to know anything about that book, you want to read it spoiler free, you can tune out of the podcast now. Uh, but w- when I was at the announcement of this whole thing, when they were announcing Star Wars The High Republic, this is like a new publishing initiative that's going to be a connected tale told 200 years before The Phantom Menace, I believe. Uh, it all starts out with this book called Star Wars, The Light of the Jedi by Charles Soule. And that has a, a inciting incident, which is kind of this galaxy wide disaster. And with this excerpt online, we have now learned a little bit about it. Brad, tell us about it. Yeah. So uh, this book is slated to come out in January of 2021. Uh, it was supposed to come out later this year, but um, it sounds like due to coronavirus stuff that just the general uh marketplace has suffered some setbacks and delays so they, they pushed the book back but uh we do get a little sneak peek as as far as how the uh the world will be set up and exactly what sets off this new uh chain of events so um as part of the excerpt there's uh what is essentially a preface that is it almost feels like an extended version of like a standard uh star wars uh, opening a scrawl that establishes uh, where you know the the universe is, you know uh, what what the High Republic stands for, the the state of the Jedi uh, and the state of the galaxy, um, which is basically finds itself at a time when uh, the Outer Rim is just starting uh, to develop and it's becoming this haven for anybody seeking uh, to escape the laws of the Republic, which makes it um, a very dangerous place, uh, as we've seen in the Star Wars universe before. And the uh, once we get into the actual first chapter, uh, the setup is uh, essentially the, the inciting incident for this disaster follows this big uh, freighter slash cargo vessel uh, that's being commanded um, by Captain Hedda Cassett. Uh, and it's the ship called the Legacy Run. It has 9,000 people on board who are heading towards the Outer Rim in an attempt to start a new life. And uh, during this time in Star Wars history, apparently they've just kind of started to figure out how hyperspace works. Uh, They have some hyperlanes that are established um, around the galaxy, but they're not necessarily easy to navigate. Even the droids that are tasked with calculating the coordinates for hyperspace travel uh, can make mistakes. And if ships go off marked routes, then you could end up lost somewhere and you have no idea where you are. Uh, And even some of the more well-traveled hyperlanes are considered to be dangerous. Uh, But for the most part, those that have been established are supposed to be clear of obstacles and don't pose any danger to those uh, traveling through them. And this ship, the Legacy Run, uh, all of a sudden, while it's making its journey, suddenly the alarms go off and there's some kind of obstacle in the middle of the hyperlane. And so Captain Cassa tries to maneuver it out of the way. Uh, The freighter is just too old um, and can't really take the pressure of trying to maneuver so quickly uh, in a hyperlane and it ends up getting completely torn apart in hyperspace and throws all the projectile of all the debris for the ship out of hyperspace at super accelerated speeds. So it basically turns all these ships uh, broken pieces into debris that's flying out towards everywhere in the galaxy from the outer rim to 
the core where there's the most population uh, of the Star Wars universe. So apparently in this moment of crisis, this is when the Republic turns to uh, the Jedi to help them deal with this situation. But apparently this is just the beginning of what will be an even larger story. Uh, so while that's the immediate concern, um, at, at least in this book, there will be much more uh, that happens as the High Republic uh, publishing initiative continues. What, what do you think about the setup for the future of the Star Wars? I mean, I guess it's not the future, it's the past of the Star Wars universe. Yeah, I'm, you know, I, it's it's interesting for sure. I'm, I think I'm more so intrigued just to see how this sets up a larger story, because right now it just feels kind of like, uh, a generic space disaster, you know, and like I don't necessarily know how the Jedi are, you know, equipped to deal with something like this. Um, you know, it sounds more like a like a premise for an Armageddon sequel <laughs> than anything. Um, <laughs> but but I don't know. I, I'm 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 intrigued. At least, you know, at least to see how this pans out and what the larger story is that comes, you know, after this, uh, you know, disaster that potentially can impa- impact the entire uh, galaxy. Yeah, we know that the bad guys in this are like these like punk rock Viking looking guys. I forget the names of them. I don't have them in front front of me, but I'm guessing they were somehow involved in like a terrorist uh, stunt that created this great disaster of some kind. But it'll be interesting to read this because Charles Soule is one of my favorite uh, comic book writers. He did uh, a bunch of the uh, Star Wars books. He did Letter 44. I I highly recommend uh, checking out any of his work. And uh, the, the do Darth you know Vader, when the book, the Darth Vader comics, especially, are really good too. Oh yeah, and he also did the uh, the the recent Ben Solo book, the the Rise of Kylo Ren, or whatever it's called. Yeah, uh, which is also very good. Um, do you know when this book comes out? Because I know it was supposed to come out around Star Wars Celebration, which is no longer happening, and I think it got delayed further. Yeah. So uh, this book, along um, with. Uh, a, a young adult or um or maybe it's a middle grade novel will be released on january 5th 2021 okay well i'm excited uh okay that does it t- for today's slash film daily you can find more of all of our work at slash film.com you can find this podcast on itunes google overcast spotify all the popular podcast apps please feel free to send your feedback questions comments concerns just of peter at slash film.com and rate and read this podcast on itunes tell your friends spread the word and we will see you on wednesday <laughs>